for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. Christian, why does that word put a bad taste in some people's mouths? Maybe it's because too many Christians don't know how to follow Christ. Religion is one thing, but a relationship is something else entirely. Discover the difference. Join us for a new series about being a Christian atheist. On part two of a series called Christian Atheist, uh, the idea comes from a book by pastor and author Craig Groeschel. And the idea behind the book, and this whole concept is incredibly simple, it is when you believe in God, but live as though he doesn't exist. And the reality is, if we're honest, every one of us have Christian atheist moments. We, we have Christian atheist moments. Some of us have a lot of them. Some of us have days filled with them. And, and so we're just looking at some different things that we, we, we live that contradicts what we believe. I want to encourage you to get the book if you can. We've still got a few left in the bookstore, and if not, Amazon has plenty for you. Uh, but the reason is we're only going to touch on four topics, and there's a lot more to be said about how we believe one thing and live another. So last week, I didn't hurt anybody's feelings at all. Thank you for agreeing with that. We talked about uh, when we believe in Jesus, but live with ourselves as king. When you believe in God, but live with yourself as king. So the idea of being a Christian atheist is really just a contradiction, right? I mean, think about the two words put together, Christian atheist. Those two words don't belong with each other. We have a lot of these in the English language. How many of you, what do we call these things when you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Two words, oxymorons, there you go. Thought it'd be fun because, you know, today's message is not going to hurt at all. So I thought I'd open up with a little humor so you can remember that I was nice to you, at least at the beginning of it. Sound good? How about this one, jumbo shrimp, right? Come on, everybody's heard that one before. My favorite one from the South is when you tell somebody they're pretty ugly. Come on, y'all, that's great. Hell's Angels, that's good. Microsoft works. I'm an Apple guy, so I can't wait for my new phone I'm about to get in about a week. Uh, How about this one, offended Christian? Oh, you know, that was the same response I got in the other service. Ooh, just a deep ooh. My wife and I used to uh, like to renovate houses. We, we love those flip shows on HGTV because, you know, we used to do that sort of stuff. My, my dad was a contractor, so I grew up around houses and house stuff. That's just really easy for me. Car stuff, not so much. I don't know how to do much but drive it. If it ever breaks down, I'm in trouble. But I can do a lot with houses. And so my wife and I, uh, when at first, early in our marriage, we would build a house and then, you know, do a lot of the work and then sell it or we'd buy something and kind of renovate it or whatever. And the last one we did, which we'll just leave it at that for now as opposed to why the last one, uh, was a Civil War home, very, very old house built for a Civil War captain and uh, had not really been touched pretty much the entire time until we got a hold of it. And we, we were going to fix this up and sell it and then be rich. Anybody ever have those kind of dreams? Uh, well, the first thing that went wrong is we bought it in 2008, and by the time we sold it, it was the bottom of the market, so we'll skip the rest of that story. But let me tell you the, good, the, the part of the story we're excited about. As we toured this home, old Civil War era home, we found something in one of the rooms, and it was an antique chickering piano. 
Now, because I'm a concert pianist, that means something to me that most of you are like, what is the big deal? Let me just tell you this. It's an antique piano that they don't make. The brand isn't in existence. And they, at this time, were experimenting with adding keys. So it was a special piano that was, was bigger than most. And this piano, even in its old, uh, unrestored condition, would have been a tremendous collector's item. And at the very least, I would have been able to trade it and get a brand new good piano like I would like to have baby grand piano in my house today. That's what it was worth. And so when we wrote the contract on this house, I was like, okay, house, fine. But piano, yes. So we wrote the contract to make sure we got all of the contents that were in the house, like it's in black and white. You can't debate this sort of thing. So we did what you're supposed to do right before you buy a house. We did our walkthrough with our realtor. We see it, and I'm looking at the piano. That's all I was thinking about for months as we're getting to this point. Thinking, man, the first thing we're going to do right after closing, got my dad's truck. We're going to load up this piano, get it back over to my. It's going to be awesome. And so we see the piano. Everything's fine. We go to closing. We sit there at the attorney's office, sign all the papers. We come back from closing, and the front door has been kicked in, and the piano is gone. It turns out that there were some uh, family members without integrity that wanted their grandmother's piano back, even though it didn't belong to them, because they waited until we were signing the papers to take it. Because they knew if they had done that before the walkthrough, the deal would have been off, and they would have lost everything. It, it took everything in me to not want to kill. Well, I guess I did want to, but it took everything in me not to kill the person that was sitting across the table from me smiling as he took my money knowing that his nephews were breaking into the house at that very moment. Anybody ever been offended? You know what I'm talking about? And so I called my realtor and she was a Christian so she helped me walk through this and, and calm down to where we didn't do anything because she really just talked me into the reality of this house is not close to your house. It was about a 40 minute drive from where I lived and if I ticked off some people had already proven not to have integrity uh, while we're going through this renovation process. It may not go well. And so she really just said, Jimmy, you got to decide if this piano is worth risking everything over. I said, well, okay, I'll be logical. You're right, it's not. And besides, I'm supposed to forgive. Every day I walked into that house to do something, if it was to paint or to fix or to order or to whatever, I thought about this piano and I thought about those people. And for months I was infuriated and I was angry. And it never went away. And then when we finally sold the house at the bottom of the market and got nothing out of it, I was reminded, I could have at least gotten a piano out of it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, right? You guys have never been there, right, where you've never been so offended that all you could think about was what has been done to you? And then somebody comes up to you and says something like, well, you know, you're supposed to forgive. I'm about to need to forgive you. That's what goes through your head, right? So today we want to talk about a nice little easy topic. Won't hurt anybody at all. But when you believe in God, but won't forgive. When you believe in God, but just won't forgive. The struggle to forgive is not a new one. So as always, we've got great news. There's something in the Bible that will help us with this. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to start about midway through something that's been going on. So we're going to be in verse 21. So here's what has happened. Jesus has been doing a teaching, and guess what? On forgiveness. He's been talking about forgiveness. But his story is kind of extreme, the idea that we should just forgive. And so one of his disciples comes up and says, wait, wait, wait a minute, Jesus. I'm pretty sure 
the sermon you just gave was too extreme. So let me clarify exactly what you meant. So we're picking it up right where Peter comes and challenges Jesus. So then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I mean, I'm sure you didn't mean that we should forgive as freely as you just preached. I'm, I'm sure you realized that like after the third time, like three strikes you're out, I'm pretty sure it's going to become a famous phrase someday, Jesus. Like you, you can't really expect, after the fourth try, they're, they're not going to get forgiven again. They're going to get killed. I, they're, they're not going to make it to seven. So I know that's not what you meant. And Jesus says, no. Whew, well, good, I'm glad that's not what you meant. No, I didn't mean seven. I meant 70 times seven. What? I mean, can you just imagine Peter at this point? I, I just told you I was going to kill him on number four, and you just went into a math problem here, 70 times seven. Now, there are a lot of numerologists that like to try to find meaning in this, and I'm not going to say they're wrong, and I'm not going to say they're right. I don't really know. I love how Jesus would give more mysteries than he did answers half the time. And, and so the idea is seven represents perfection, and so 70 times seven would ultimately represent infinity of that. And I don't know about that, but here's what I do know. Who can count to and keep up with what's been done to you 70 times, seven times? Exactly. And that's really what Jesus is after here. Like, if you can actually keep up with how often this is going to happen, then this number will suffice. But the reality is there is no number that will suffice. There is no number that will be good enough because at some point you're going to always need to keep forgiving. I want you to lose count is what Jesus is saying. And so then he does what any good preacher would do. He preached a sermon. Someone clearly didn't follow his point. They ask a question, so he preaches sermon number two. Come on, I love when I get permission to preach again. That's why y'all don't ever ask questions at the end because you know you're going to be staying for an extra hour. So Jesus says, let me tell you a story. It's called a parable. He said, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. Very important part because what Jesus is trying to do is to give us a picture of a different reality. He's not saying, okay, Peter is between you and James. I know y'all fight all the time. He's like, no, no, let's stop talking about you and James and let's start talking about your God in heaven. And let's make sure you get the real point here. So the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, you may not know much about what that means, but you can already figure out 10,000 of something is a lot of something, right? I mean, we're already, we can get that much from the story. Jesus is also going to use an extreme amount of money because he's trying to make an extreme point. But I'm going to help make his extreme point because we're going to do the math. A talent was not a coin. So this isn't like 10,000 coins right there called talents. It was a measure. It was a unit of, of measurement, like reckoning amount. And so the, the same way that we would use a term like millionaire, I can't wait to be a millionaire. They would say, I can't wait to have a talent. And a talent was equal to 20 years wages for the average day laborer, which is about the same for us today. Uh, not, not far off from if you were an hourly worker and you worked for 20 years, you might get to being a millionaire, right? So it's kind of a similar concept. You just want to get to that word. You want to have a talent. And so if we do the actual math, though, let's say that you make $15 an hour, you work a normal full-time job, you don't spend a penny for 20 years, you only work. I don't know how you eat or sleep because you can't spend the money. But if you could accumulate all of that money for 20 years, you would come up with $600,000. 
That's what you would have. Now, here's the problem. He owes 10,000 of those. 10,000 times 600,000. Anybody know what that is? Six billion dollars. So somebody who would make $15 an hour has a debt of six billion dollars. The point that Jesus is trying to make is what he owed was simply impossible. It was incalculable in his mind. He would never be able to get to this point and do this. And so, of course, what Jesus is doing is, because he told us at the beginning, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, is he's trying to say, let's talk about what God in heaven has done to forgive you. And that amount, because what he's really saying is we have a perfectly holy God. Like there is no error in him. Perfectly holy. And then over here, there's you guys. You and me. Humans. And we're perfectly not holy. And the distance between the two is such an incalculable amount that we could never get there. We could never pay it back. We could never earn enough to make this right. And Jesus is saying, you've got this debt that you owe. That if you spent an entire life, if you, if you dedicated 20 years to waking up every day, and every day for 20 years, I'm going to do as much good as I can do. I'm going to do as much right as I can do. I'm going to avoid as much sin as I can avoid. So that at the end of that day, I will hopefully earn wages of holiness at least that much. And if I were to accumulate that for an entire 20 years and never subtract one penny of holiness from what I've saved, I would not have enough. And if I could do that for 10 lifetimes, I would not have enough. And if I could do the exact same thing for 100 lifetimes and for 1,000 lifetimes, I would not have enough. Jesus is making a very extreme point to show us how far we are from what God has done for us. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. This was an incredibly common practice in biblical times. This is an indentured servant. What it simply means is I owe Joe more money than I can pay Joe. Uh, I borrowed lunch money yesterday. I don't have lunch money today. So today Joe says, well, you can wash my car then. I just became his indentured servant. I washed his car and he said, your lunch was better than that. Mow the grass too. <laughs> yeah, you didn't buy me that kind of lunch, man. What are you talking about? And it would just go on and on and on. And it could get to a point where I owe Joe so much money that he's going to have to make me his indentured servant for life. And that'll still never repay it. So he also gets to collect five or six or eight or ten other humans called my family and sells them in an effort to help pay back that debt. It was, it was a normal thing back then. Didn't want to have a father who would get you in the debt. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything now if you've been following with me and i hope you have no he's not he can't the amount that he owes is not payable so at best we've got someone who is just incredibly deceived about his own situation in life and at worst we've got an outright liar that will say anything to get out of a situation but this is not a good guy when you read this story, you hopefully have already figured that out. Not a good guy. He is not out for good. He can't be trusted. He's a sinful person. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Wow. 
Thank you, Jesus. Can we stop there? Great story. Appreciate that. Perfect God in heaven. We're nowhere close, but massive debt forgiven by the master because the master takes pity on us. Yes, let's go home happy. Good job. Unfortunately, this story doesn't end there, if you know. It goes on to say this, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Now, a hundred denarii was a significant sum of money. I know a lot of times you read this story and go, man, you were forgiven for so much. You know, how, how can you not just go and, and just say, no, nah, it's not a big deal. It was a big deal. It was about $12,000, again, for a day laborer in today's terms. So if someone owed you $12,000 right now, it'd be pretty hard for you to say, <laughs> don't worry about it. So when we read this story, sometimes we miss out on the fact that this was still a significant amount of money to someone making $15 an hour. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Then when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Tattletales, even in the Bible. Can y'all believe that? Who likes tattletales in here? Anybody? Jeez. And his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servants, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? I know what you're thinking because I know what I thought every time I read this story. I mean, even from when I was a kid, I would read this story and go, what an idiot. What an idiot. How does he not see the obvious? I mean, dude, you were just forgiven an amount of money that you could never pay back. And now you're trying to collect money from somebody that owes you some. What an idiot. Anybody with me on this one? Like, Jesus, this story couldn't possibly even come close to being legitimate. Nobody is this foolish. Nobody is this disconnected. Nobody would say, thank you that I don't owe you $6 billion. Now you, on the other hand, you're going to give me $12,000. No, I mean, it would be one thing, Jesus, if your story had like a month that transpired in between the two. But so he could forget and he could, and then he has his, oh, no, never mind. Sorry, dude, I, I forgot. You know, no, 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 but that's not even there. Jesus, your story is just ridiculous because nobody could literally walk out the door from saying, thank you that you forgave me to, you owe me money. Nobody could do that. Or could they? You know, Jesus' point is pretty simple. We can't see ourselves because every moment of our lives. We have walked out of the throne room of heaven of being forgiven a debt against a holy God that we would not even be allowed to enter his presence in our own merit by what we've earned, by what we could pay. If there were an admission price, think about it like that since this is all about money. Imagine that in order to go and talk to God, like you get up every morning and you can pray. You can say, hey God, good morning, how are you? Imagine if in order to do that, you had to pay an admission price. You had to pay something that said, this deserves my time in your presence. This is worthy of, of, of you allowing me to talk to you. And if you understood that that amount of money was something you could never earn, and God said, come on in anyway, which he does. He lets us into his presence anytime, anywhere. We get to talk to him. We get to whine to him, and he doesn't strike us with lightning. We get to just be in a bad attitude, and he's like, all right, are you done now? Let me tell you. All right, come on. Let me encourage you. I mean, I mean he does that for us. 
And then we walk around and go, how dare you say that about me? You're evil. I will never speak to you again. It's just what we do, even though we look at this story and go, what an idiot. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which we know he cannot do. So he will never get out. So also, these are scary words. This sentence concerns me. So also, just as that master did, just as that person did, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if. We talked about ifs last week, if you were here, about how ifs really mess up the good stuff in the Bible. Like, wow, man, then the Bible would be a lot more exciting at times and a lot easier for us to get things, you know, from God if he didn't keep throwing those ifs in there. Like he wants us to be involved in this process. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples how to pray, he said, pray, Father in heaven, forgive me as I have forgiven others. Basically, he's saying you don't have permission to ask for forgiveness if you're not giving forgiveness. Now, when you first read this, if you're new to reading the Bible and you don't ha haven't had a couple of theology classes, it, it may really uh, call into question your salvation. You may think, wait a minute, if I'm reading this right because almost every time someone teaches on forgiveness in the Bible, there's an if that goes with it. And the if is that we're always supposed to forgive equally as the way we're forgiven. And, and it makes you wonder, wait a minute, so if I don't forgive, can I not go to heaven? Well, I certainly hope that's not what it means. And my theology has me pretty well convinced that when Jesus died for all of our sins yesterday, today, and tomorrow, one of those sins included my unforgiveness and included my bitterness. And so at that point, though, some of us go, whew, well, I can go to heaven. Huh, thanks for that sermon. Hey, can we go to lunch now? Because apparently I don't have to forgive so much anymore. Well, here's the thing. Hell is not the only prison that we can be thrown into. There's someone I know, and I know them very well because I've known them for a very long time. And since I know a lot of people and I pastor a church where I counsel a lot of people and talk to a lot of people and watch a lot of people mess up their lives, I hope my next statement carries a lot of weight to you. But I do not know another human that is as unforgiving and bitter as this person. And if you were to ask me, Jimmy, put all of the people you know in order, like give me a top 10 list of all the people you have met in your life that are unforgiving and bitter. This person is so far above the rest, I would leave the next five slots blank in my top 10 list just to show how far they are from the second person that I know. Truly the most bitter, angry, unforgiving person I've ever met. Even this person's own spouse says, I just do not know how they can hold on to stuff that just doesn't matter for so long. And over the last 20 years, I've watched this person's health completely deteriorate. Now, I want to make it sure you, you understand, I am not saying that sin equals sickness. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that I've, I've just observed something that makes me wonder. It just makes me wonder. Because this person has reached a point where they cannot leave their bedroom. They cannot function. They do not have a life. They cannot open the blinds of their windows. They cannot spend time with their children. They are on disability. They can't get a job. They can't, they, they're, they're not even there. They lie in bed and breathe. And I've watched them get to that point while every doctor says, there's nothing wrong with you medically. 
There's nothing wrong with it. We can't find anything. And, and even when the doctors can't find anything, we say, well, we could try this treatment. They've tried this treatment, that treatment, that treatment, that treatment, that treatment. And they've tried everything that could be tried that has any kind of a symptom that, that this person is experiencing. And the doctors still say, but we don't see anything wrong. We can't find what's wrong. We don't know what's wrong. And yet, it could be. It just could be. You know, maybe your prison is something that you can't connect the dots. Maybe you're having a hard time because Bob borrowed $100 and he never gave it back. And, and you, you just can't understand why he won't give it back. And even when you hint, hey, Bob, I'd like to go to lunch today. I just wish I had money. And Bob just pretend. And then finally you get the guts to go, hey, Bob, you do remember you owe me $100. He's like, what are you talking about? I didn't borrow $100. What? Now not only is he not paying you back, but he's like, why? What kind of a person? And you feel like somebody's just doing that right there. You, you, you won't do what you said you would do, and you even lie about it. Come on. And so you can't get over it. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop thinking that Bob owes you $100, and no matter what, you can't get ahead financially. Every time you get a bonus, an appliance breaks. Every time you get a raise, a bill goes up. It just doesn't seem to matter, and you never thought. wonder if those are connected. Maybe you actually can't forgive your own mistakes. Maybe you're like me. I don't have a problem forgiving a lot of other people. Actually, I'm so forgetful for what people do. I'm pretty good at, at like, just, oh, you did, I forgot about that. But I don't forgive me. Any recovering perfectionist in the room or just perfectionist? Just don't forgive me. If I do something, if I make a wrong decision, if I do something wrong, I will, I will hate myself over it. I will be depressed over it. I will get to a point where I cannot function. Maybe you just can't forgive your mistakes and no matter what, you wake up feeling guilty, you go to bed depressed, and you never thought. Maybe those are connected. Like the person I just described, maybe you can't forgive much of anybody for much of anything. And yet your body is starting to deteriorate and nobody knows why, and you never thought. Maybe those are connected. It's not just that we have to go to hell to experience a prison of bitterness and unforgiveness. Our bodies are not meant to carry. Our souls are not meant to carry. And when we do, at some point it shows up, even if we can't put a finger on it. Now, what I'd like to do is to help us with this because I don't need to tell you that we need to forgive. Anybody need me to tell you that we should forgive? Yeah, exactly. You don't need me to tell you that. And if at this point I just said, hey, everybody, I'll need to forgive. Enjoy lunch. Have a nice day. Everybody's going to leave the room guilty, never wanting to come. Like, that was the worst church service I ever went to. All they did make me feel really, really bad. I feel bad enough. Satan's doing a good job. I don't need a preacher to help with that, right? I mean, come on. That's the last thing you need. So what I'd like to do in the time we have left is talk about a practical how to. How to forgive. I feel like God gave me something a few years ago, an analogy that has really helped me. It's helped other people when I've shared it. I've preached it before, so some of you have heard that as well. But there is a how-to that can get us to a point where we can actually release something because of the way we see it. But before I do that, I want to just point out that sometimes forgiveness is not as complicated as we make it. There is a significant amount of things that we need to forgive that we should just simply let go of if we had more self-awareness. 
A lot of what we are so uptight about, we're, we're bitter about, and we're angry about, and we're always mad at somebody about, is because they did a stupid human thing. And if we could just for one moment look in the mirror and go, hey, you're a stupid human too, it'd be a whole lot easier to let some of these things go. So it, just as an example, one of my most frustrating moments and where if, if I have a lot of unforgiveness that it takes place is driving my car because there are people that do not know how to drive. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And they all live here. They all live here. It was a demonic ploy. Satan said, let's get everybody who cannot drive and put them in Columbia, South Carolina. Eventually, that pastor will shoot somebody at an intersection and he will no longer be a pastor. It is a demonic ploy to get me out of what God has called me to do by putting all of the bad drivers in Columbia, South Carolina. All right, anyway. And so I get angry very easily. Thank you. But only at stupid drivers when they drive stupidly. Let me tell you a story. There was a night in October, about seven years ago, when our fourth child was being born. Now, there are two things that happen if you have multiple children with every child that you give birth to. The first one is that you wait later and later and later to go. You know what I'm talking about with the first child? You've got like a week's worth of luggage, like you're going on vacation or something. And it's packed, it's in both cars. And the first time that she even like stubs her toe, you're off to the hospital. Oh no, we're having a baby. And the doctor says, well, you, you could spend three weeks in the waiting room if you want, or you can go back home and come back later, right? Okay, but you get to the point where this was our last child. By your last child, you look at each other and go, I think we can finish the movie first, don't you? <laughs> we still got popcorn. I think we can do it. Let's cut it close. And so that's where we were. The second thing that happens with every child as you begin having more children is they come quicker and quicker and quicker. And so first child, 23 hours of labor. Last child, three seconds of labor. That kind of thing. You know what I'm talking about? True story. Two of our children not delivered by doctors because they didn't have time to get there. All right, so this is our last child. It's late at night, and, and so we've already cut it close. We know the children are coming closer because we've been through this, done this. And so I'm traveling right down Clemson Road, right by here, going right by this, and i got to get on to 20, get downtown to the hospital to, to have the baby. And as soon as we turn the curve, and we're both leaning this way as we turn the curve onto the exit ramp, I see nothing from here all the way to Columbia but red lights. I don't know who did what on I-20, but it wasn't moving anymore thought to myself, I am not about to have a baby in my car. So I do what any intelligent human would do at that point. I back up the one lane, one way on ramp with all the other cars doing this. Cars going to my right, blowing the horn. Cars going to my left, blowing the horn. And I know every one of them is saying, what a stupid person. You idiot. What are you doing? But it made perfect sense in my head because I didn't want to have a baby in my car. And I don't remind myself every day in traffic when somebody cuts me off and does something stupid. You remember that time seven years ago when you did something stupid? We really could deal with a lot of the, the anger in our lives and the unforgiveness if we could just remind ourselves we too are stupid humans. When someone does a stupid human thing. Unfortunately, and as funny as that is, that doesn't really solve all of our problems. Because a lot of our problems don't come from stupid human stuff. A lot of our problems come from evil. At least that's the word we'd use. A lot of our problems come from things that were done with hurtful intent. A lot of our problems, well, they leave us as a victim because the person never said they were sorry. 
and honestly, they maybe never will. So how do we forgive that? Well, this is the thing that God gave me. Some of you have heard it. I'm going to share with you again because I don't have anything better. But God gave me the analogy of a debt collector. Hopefully, you have never experienced a debt collector. But debt collectors are really nasty people. They will call you at all hours of the night. They will call you all day long. They will call you things they shouldn't call, even though they're illegal, to say those kinds of things to you. They will threaten you. They will tell you that they're going to grab your kids from school and kidnap them until you... I mean, I'm just, they're just mean, nasty people. And the reason they are mean and nasty people is because they make their profit, their entire living, off of getting a debt paid by you. And how did they get involved? Well, they got involved because let's say you owed something like a hospital bill. Let's say you owed $2,000 to the hospital and you never paid it. Maybe you were out of a job. Maybe you were broke. I don't know what the situation was, but you just didn't pay the bill. You weren't going to pay the bill. The hospital quickly figured out you were never going to pay the bill. So they're just going to cut their losses and get done. And so they do something like selling that debt for pennies on the dollar. And so a debt collector will come along and they'll buy your $2,000 debt for $200. And at that point, the hospital says, paid and done. You could walk in the next day and say, I'd like to pay my bill. And they'd say, sorry, sir, it's done. You don't owe us a penny. But the debt collector, on the other hand, is going to come to you and say, you owe me. You owe me the $2,000 plus legal fees, plus penalties, and plus interest. Isn't it funny that when people offend us, the more that we meditate on it, the longer we think about it, the worse it gets, the more we think they owe. And we become determined to collect this debt from this person. And we call at all hours of the night. Or at least we wake up in the middle of the night thinking about how we've been hurt. First thing we do in the morning, we wake up and our anger towards that person is on our mind. We go to sleep angry at the fact that they said something funny and happy on social media and here we are bitter and upset. Why are they enjoying life and I'm not? And you see, it really all comes down to this. The hospital at some point figured out we've got a choice. We can have our doctors start following patients around and going, no, 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 I see them at Starbucks. They're buying coffee. Oh, they can afford to pay the bill. And then suddenly a nurse runs up and knocks the coffee out of their hand and grabs their wallet and runs. Or they can let nurses be nurses and doctors be doctors. See, at some point they got to figure out, are we going to be a hospital or are we going to be a debt collecting agency? And it's the same choice that you and I have to make. At some point, we have to understand people do owe us a debt. But do you want to be a debt collector? Or do you want, and here's where it gets good, to transfer that debt and go back to being who you're supposed to be? You see, God is a loving God. God is a forgiving God. God is a merciful God. But God is also a just God. And if you will say, you know what, God, because you are perfectly just, you'll do a better job of collecting that debt than I ever will. I'm going to give it to you. After all, I've been forgiven $6 billion. I'm going to give you the 12000 they owe me. And I'm going to tell them that the debt's paid. If they come to me tomorrow with $12,000, I'm going to say, it's paid. It's paid. But the reason so often that God is not able to deal with that person is because we get in his way. I mean, right here is Bob. Bob Bob is sinning against us. He's doing something wrong. And here's God. God's coming to correct Bob. And we get away and go, you evil person. I got this. I'm going to take out my vengeance for it. We don't just give it to God. 
and let God, who is perfectly just, carry out his justice. Now, I'm going to give you a little warning that goes with this, or at least a caveat. Our idea of give it to God, all right, God, I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you. And tomorrow, I'm going to follow Bob around, waiting on a train to hit him. If you give it to God, he is likely not to collect when you want or how you want, but he will collect. And the reality is you may never see it, but he will collect. So the choice is yours. Did you notice the story with the day laborer? You know what that means? That means he was like a blacksmith, a stable hand, a shepherd. He got paid hourly, daily to do a job. But did you catch the story? Most people miss this. He had a career change in the middle of the story. Did you catch his career change? I mean, he went to his master. We'll call him a blacksmith just because we don't know. He went into his master's office owing money as a blacksmith. And after he was forgiven his debt, he did not return to the blacksmith shop ever again. Instead, he left his master's office saying, thank you that you forgave me. Thank you that I've got a permanent vacation. And he left and became a permanent debt collector. I've been forgiven, but I will get every penny you owe me. Unfortunately, he got another career change to prisoner. But he never was what he was called to be again. And that's the question for you. What do you want to be? Because Jesus did not die to make us debt collectors. Jesus died so that we could be free. The Bible says it is for freedom that Christ set us free. Why do you return again to those elementary ways of the world? Like trying to collect your own debts. Like trying to be angry at people that have hurt you. Like trying to be bitter because people have done wrong. What do you want to be? Do you want to be free and teaching kids happily? Do you want to be free and owning your business happily? Do you want to be free and smiling when you see your kids? Do you want to be free and, and going to work every day? Do you want to be free and be a soldier who has a smile on their face? Do you want to be free and who God made you to be? Or do you want to be a debt collector? I thought it would be wise if we ended differently today. So if you notice, we didn't do communion before. We're going to do it now because there is no better reminder of what has been done for us than when we participate in communion. In just a moment, the ushers are going to pass out to you a small cracker and a small cup of juice. And as they do that, we're going to hold them for a moment and I'm going to pray over all of us. And as I'm praying, what I want us to understand as we hold these little things in our ushers, go ahead. As we hold these things, sorry, we're out of order, so we're making this up as we go. As you hold this in your hand, I want you to remember, go ahead, it represents the body of Christ. The cracker represents the body of Christ that was broken for you. The juice represents the blood of Christ that was shed for you, poured out when his body was injured. Just hold them to the end. We'll all take together.
down at what is in your hands. The good news for us is it is simply a cracker and a cup of juice. But it represents a body that was beaten with whips that had pieces of bone tied into it. And that body was broken to a point that it was unrecognizable. Even though that body belonged to an innocent person. Today, you have been hurt by someone at some point. Someone has said something that you didn't deserve to have said about you. Someone treated you in a way you didn't deserve to be treated. And even more sadly for some of us, things that we don't even want to speak of this morning have happened to you at the hand of another person. And as evil and horrible as all of those things are, none of it compares to what Jesus experienced for you. And if Jesus, after having that done, can hang on that cross for you and look down and say, Father, forgive them, then there should never be a time where we would call ourselves offended Christians. Because there is absolutely nothing that can be done to us, said about us, that is worse than what we have done to a perfectly holy God. And yet his forgiveness is free. And as a result, God expects us to give it equally, freely, and quickly, in abundance. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you. And we admit, in our humanity, we will never fully grasp what we're talking about today. We will never be able to truly understand the distance between God's holiness and us. We, this side of heaven, will never be able to truly grasp the debt you have paid for us. But today we ask you to help us understand it a little better. And today we ask you to forgive, <clears throat> forgive our unforgiveness. Make us more like you. <clears throat> we thank you that all that you've done for us. And we remember that by taking this juice and this cracker here this morning. Let's go ahead and take together. All throughout the message, you've heard me referring to the distance between a holy God and humanity. Talking about how Jesus died on the cross for us and has forgiven us. But there's a piece in there that you need to know, and that is that every one of us at some point has to engage that reality. See, Jesus didn't just die for a sea of humanity. He died for each and every one of you. And that means that each and every one of you at some point has to say, thank you for dying for me. I want to live for you. And if you've never done that, I want to encourage you this morning to respond and say, Jesus, thank you that you died for me. I want to live for you. All you have to do is a simple conversation with him. Will you join me? Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. I do want to live for you. 
I pray that you will help me not to be an offended Christian, but to show your love and your forgiveness as freely as you've given it to me. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash gracelifeme and on Twitter at gracelifechurch.com.